Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. Today I'm joined not by Dagan, but by our mother, Betty Ann Moriarty. Mom, thank you for joining me today. I guess I'm supposed to say hi, guys. Hi, guys. <laughs> That's the way. Yeah. Now, today is an interesting episode of Knockback, I hope, for you guys. It's the first episode of the public feed of Knockback episodes that Dagan won't be co-hosting. Dagan has co-hosted every one of them before this, and he will co-host, I think, pretty much all of them after this. And the ones on Patreon that are exclusive, I obviously did with my best friend Ramon about topics like the Mighty Ducks and stuff that Dagan can't speak about. But I wanted to have mom on for a what is admittedly going to be a brief episode of Knockback compared to the sometimes ridiculous lengths that those episodes go. (laughs) We've gone, you know, two, two and a half hours and more on some of these topics. This one's probably going to go even under an hour because of our limited time. But I wanted to have mom on while I'm out here visiting her out east. We did a fireside chat as well. That was kind of my priority. But I wanted to do a quick knockback with mom about growing up in the 50s and 60s, because this is a topic that Dagan and I will not be able to cover. (laughs) Dagan was born in 73. I was born in 84. So we can't talk about that. But I thought it'd be fun to do, you know, an hour, maybe a little less than an hour before mom has to go to an appointment that we can talk about what that experience was like growing up in the 50s and 60s. Mom was born in 1950. And so we'll have a lot to cover. So mom, thanks for joining me. Appreciate you. Oh, it's always my pleasure to be with you. And this will be, a, I think, will be a fun one. I think so. Because I hope so. You know, I have a, a unique and I guess bizarre interest in almost everything. So this is, <laughs> this is, you know, something where I can kind of pick your brain and and we can kind of learn a little bit about what that experience was like and compare it and contrast it today to to today. Because not only did you raise children in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, but you also have grandchildren now. And so there's a lot, you oh know, my. six six grandchildren. So there's a lot to compare and contrast it to. So. I guess uh, we'll just start broad as we usually do on Knockback when Dagan and I talk. What was it like coming up in the 1950s? I think it was awesome. I I was I had a blessed childhood. I really did because we had like a nuclear family, which was pretty common, I think, in the city. But we weren't in the city. I moved out of Brooklyn when I was two years old and. We moved out to Long Island, to Albertson, Long Island. My grandparents actually moved with us. My grandfather actually found the house that we lived in and that my mother lived in until she passed. He found the house and then brought everybody out to see it and just said, you know, we're going to live together kind of thing. And I don't really know where that stemmed from, except that my mother was an only child. My grandfather was an orphan when he was 10 years old. My grandmother and grandfather got married when they were 16 and 17 years old, respectively. They just were really part, you know, they were part of our family. My mother, so I was born in 1950, 
in Brooklyn, moved out to Long Island when we were two. We lived on a wonderful block called Willow Place in Albertson. And there were lots and lots of kids. Like one family, I think, had seven kids. Another family had eight kids. The people next door to us had two kids. The people across the street from us had five. I think me and June... I'm not going to say their last names because I don't yeah, want to yeah, like, screw that up. But um, June and I were the only people that had one kid in the family. And I was like horrified because, you know, I wanted sisters and brothers and it wasn't happening. When my sisters were born in 1960, I have two sisters. They're twins. They're fraternal twins, Carla and Joni. And they were born in 1960 to my delight. But before they were born, I went to... Um, you know, like a public kindergarten right down the block was only three houses away from our house. And then I went to a private Catholic school um, from first through eighth grade. And I actually, I know that you didn't like your Catholic school experience in New Hampshire, but I loved my Catholic school experience. So again, I had the best of both worlds because you know, my my really close friends ended up going to St. Aidan's with me, which was in Williston Park. And then my other friends on the block went to public school. So I had like a million friends, which was really awesome. I did want to say something, and now I can't remember what I was going to say. But it's we'll a common probably, theme yeah, in this family. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, it happens to me all the time on podcasts. Does it? And two days later, I'll be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I wanted <laughs> Let to me tell you wake this. Wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah. So... We played outside a lot, right? The kids today don't play outside. I know that you also played outside a lot. I feel like you know, we were the last generation. I really think you're. That. I think you're right. We played outside. We had. We were just talking about this last night, actually, with my family. We had a lot of snow, and it was very cold. You know, we were in New York, not in not in Virginia, right? But lots of snow. Maybe the lot the lots of snow was from the fact that I was only two and a half feet tall and it just seems like a lot of snow, you know, I'm not really sure, but lots of snow, lots of walking to places, you know, the parents weren't afraid to let you really outside like the kids are today. It's just a different world today. Like with my grandchildren, they don't go outside and play. Their parents are always with them. They have play dates, play dates. We used to say, go outside and play in the yard. Yeah. Well, that's why I said even in my experience in the 80s and 90s that I would disappear all day. And this was before we, you know, it's not before cell phones. Cell phones existed, but no one had them. Right. And no one had any idea where I was. And it seemed like everything was perfectly fine. I mean, from 9 or 10 in the morning until dinner time, I was probably just totally gone. Well, you, know? you might have been at Ann and Ed's house, our next door neighbors, mm-hmm. using the computer. Yeah. Because that's to... what you called it, the yes. computer. They they were the only people in the neighborhood that had a computer at the time. And I would say, he would, Colin would say to me, I'm going to go play with the computer. And I would be like, no, you're not going to play with the computer. Leave them alone. They were a flight attendant and a pilot, and they had two children. But... If I couldn't find him, I knew that he was over at Ann and Ned's. I'd call up and she'd say, yep, he's on the computer. <laughs> it's just a different time. It's, a very, it's, very, it's, very, it's kind of blessed different. to be able to live in that, in that world. Oh, but absolutely blessed. One thing I wanted to ask you, because war isn't so much... We talk about it a lot oh. in, in, our, in our experience with Iraq and Afghanistan. And that especially ravaged my generation. Right. You know, I know people that went over there and are indelibly changed and have horrifying stories but I, I don't think thankfully anyone at least i'm close to has died but you know even in northeastern i was a history major so i had a bunch of rotc people that all right. shipped over after we right. graduated right. was world war ii and the 
legacy of that, something that came up a lot in the 50s? No, it's really funny. I was talking about this with um, my best friend Gail and her husband's had were here last weekend for a Christmas dinner with us. And we were talking about the war. So Ted's dad was in World War II. My dad was in World War II. And Larry, my husband's dad, was in World War II. And um, Ted's, my father was in the Army Air Corps. Tad's father was in the Navy and Larry's father was in the Army. So they were in three different services. And you would think that they had kind of different experiences. But we we decided and we found out when we were talking to each other about it that none of the three of them would ever talk about their experience in World War II. It was like kind of the silent war in that when they came back, they didn't talk about it. And they wouldn't talk about it. Like if I would ask my father... Dad, what was it like? He was in the um, China-India-Burma theater. Larry's father was on Normandy when, um, and he was a medic on Normandy when they were coming onto land. That must have been pleasant. Uh, You know, and so he saw so many different things than my father Mm -hmm. did. And then Tad's father, I don't know what theater he was in, but I remember the ship, but I can't think of it. I can't think Mm -hmm. of the ship. It's actually docked in in, um, Washington, D.C. now, I think. But, um... They, none of them would talk about it. Now, Larry was in the Cold War, at the very end of the Cold War, even though it was the Vietnam era. Mm. He was in college. So when he got out of college and went into the service, and he was in the Navy, he didn't talk about He was a cryptologist, a Russian cryptologist. He didn't um, talk about he He doesn't talk about it because of his job, because it was like, you know, he was a spy. Right. You know what and I mean? he's still with the, and he's with the FBI today as a right. linguist and an analyst right. and stuff. Right, yeah. right. So he he still won't talk about it. We have very brief conversations when he comes home from work. I'm like, hi, babe, how was your day? And he's like, good. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end yeah, of the extent of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Right. But they didn't talk about it. Now, you know, we're getting away from the 50s a little. We're going into the 60s. But your father and I, your father was in the Air Force. Um, your father and I went through all of St. Aidan's and all of high school together, except we didn't know each other, which was really weird. Um, he must have not been in my classes because we had kind of contained classes and we just moved up with that class. Right. Then in sixth grade, we had the boys' school, so the boys went over to the boys' school. So I, did, I knew your father, but I didn't know him, if you know what I'm saying. I wasn't friends with him. But in high school, we became friends. So that was... In 64, we went to high school, and we went to Mineola High School. We went to a public high school, which was really bizarre world for me because I wasn't used to that. We had friends, three friends that I can think of that died in Vietnam, and uh, most of our friends were in the service and overseas. Your father wasn't overseas, but um, they saw a lot of action. They're very sick today. From they, from Agent Orange and all that. From kind of Agent stuff. Orange, from they all have hepatitis for some reason, and they all uh, now one of them and stuff like that. You would assume maybe from the medics. I, yeah, I think the medics were giving them like injections with the same. They used to give it to them in like a. It looked like a. It had many needles. Yeah, and I know just, exactly what you're talking right, about. Yeah, I've gotten I, shots like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like a gun. Right. It was like a gun that they used. When I was a kid, I got those. I don't know what that was, but yeah, but it's, like, it's like five spokes. Or right, right yeah. but they used different needles. Right, of, well, of course. But for them, they didn't. And a lot of them have hepatitis. One of my, it was my, it's actually how I met your father through Terry, my friend Terry. He's actually very sick. He has cancer. So 
cancer of the liver. It's really sad because a lot of them are really sick. The ones that didn't die, a lot of them are really sick. But anyway, let's talk about something more pleasant. Yeah. Well, I mean, why well, brought up war? Because I was curious, like how how you know Korea obviously was raging while you were a, a, young, a baby, a toddler, yeah, a little, which, which I'm sure was cog- which I'm sure was important to people at the time. But I was curious about how much the the legacy of that war played into the suburban experience on so, Long Island because you know you're a ba- you're literally a baby boomer. I mean you're the of yes. the generation of that generation. Yeah. Your parents got married after the war, as many millions of people did. It's a very Americana experience, and right. so I'm um, yeah. I was curious about how much that the fight against the Nazis and the Japanese kind of played in the background or didn't. And it's interesting it, that they kind of just shut it out. It didn't, but you know what did play in was Russia, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm at that time right yes so we had now this could have come from world war ii the scare from world war ii i don't know i never asked i never made it you know i never put it together when i was growing up but when we moved to long island we had a basement you know it was a two-story a cape cod and it had a basement a full basement and we had a stove down the basement a real italian house we had the stove down the basement as well as the stove of course in the kitchen and not to, you know, we, none, no one had air conditioning. You know what I mean? You open the windows and you open the windows in the basement right. to put, put air in it. We had the washer and dryer in the basement. But we had a shelf in the basement that was from one side to the other, from front to back, full of canned goods, full constantly. And that was like that until I got married. Yeah, I, I remember that being even that way when I was a right? kid. Right, yeah. right. Because yeah. you used to go down there and get go get the peas, go get the right, whatever. go get yeah. the peas, right, and and I think that really came from having to have like a bomb shelter. Like even when I was in school in St. Aidan's, we used to have fire air raid drills, probably every month or two, where you know they would put us all in the hallway. Don't ask me what this was going to do for us. Our our windows were huge. You know, they were probably 15 feet high. We had, you know, a big old school with huge windows. Every classroom had the windows. The whole wall, the outside wall was windows in every classroom. And they used to put us in the hallway away from the door, you know, away from the doors and the windows. They'd pull the shades down. They'd shut out all the lights. And we had to get, like, crouched down like a, like a bug. You know what I mean? Like our legs and arms underneath us covering our heads with our hands like head to backside head to backside if you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. all the whole hall was covered with kids because we we had like 70 kids in our class you know at that time each each classroom so we used to do that and i remember going home and saying to my father who i knew was in the serve had been in the service Daddy, are we going to die? And he'd say, why are you asking me that? And I'd say, because we had an air raid drill today. And he would say, no, we're not going to die. And we would we would talk about in school that if something happens, all the lights had to be out in the house. You couldn't use candles. You had to make sure all the windows were covered. Right. And that's to not give the Soviet pilots targets. Right. And I used to say, but that window doesn't have you know what are we going to do you know are we going to pull the curtains and pull because we we didn't have the back room in the house at the time it was just like the box you know the the original box house um and he would say we're going to be fine everything is going to be fine but that carried with me through i would say eighth grade you know what i mean and i was 12 years old or 13 years old when i graduated when when did you realize that the whole kiss your ass goodbye thing 
you know, duck and cover and kiss your ass work. goodbye. Yeah, that, I, you're going to be I never thought vaporized. it would I never thought it would Because that became a joke work. with your generation later. Yes. That you guys were basically being, not lied to, but it was kind of like ridiculous. Like we because, weren't going to, it wasn't going to save us. Right. Right. By kissing someone else's ass, actually, because yeah. we were, you know, head yeah. to ass, head to ass, going down the hallway. It was really frightening. And I remember being really touched by that and in, in not in an adverse way. You know, I was worried about my dad having to go to war again. I remember saying to my grandfather, are you going to go too? Because my grandfather was very young, but he just missed being being drafted into World War II because he tried to get get. No, that was, he wanted to be a cop and he tried to do that. But he just missed the deadline. I think he had to be 34 or something. Mm -hmm. And he was just 34 or something like that when that happened. So, yeah, it was really. So they didn't want him. Yeah. They didn't want him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm of that age too. I always think about that too with selective service where I'm of the age where they wouldn't draft me. Although if if it was bad enough, you wouldn't have to draft me. I would would volunteer. Yeah. So that contrast see i'm always fascinated by the shadow of of that war which we won we didn't have to have won it could have gone very differently for us of course but we won so we had the kind of the victor's spoils as it were and that contrasts always really interestingly with the 50s to me in terms of the leave it to beaver lucy americana wholesomeness two beds yeah right so i can talk about that yeah i'm I'm interested in like what was it really as wholesome and really as innocent as it as it seems in hindsight not well it was wonderfully wholesome in many ways but I didn't have a normal household because my my mother, way before women's lib came into existence, you know, women's lib with like Jane Fonda. Right, like the know. new wave. Yeah. Right. Not the suffragettes, but like the new wave feminism. Right. Um, way before that happens, I, my mother always had a wonderful job actually in the city, in Manhattan. And my father works for the government, for the U.S. government. He works for the Department of the Army. And he was an accountant for them. And he did that until he retired. But that's a whole other story with my father because he did so many different things. But um, my mother was a key punch operator. Now, you know, key punch operators worked with computers. They had to punch the cards that were fed into the computers to, like, do payroll or whatever they were doing with it. And I have a picture. I just found a picture of her, which I'm going to make for all of you guys. But um, she was a key punch operator, and she worked in Lloyd and Taylor, and she worked in Van Heusen at different times, Van Heusen shirts. I think she worked in Van Heusen first and then Lund Hill, but I might have that wrong. And so they used to go to work every day on the train. They would leave before I woke up. And my grandfather, who worked nights, he worked in the Palladium and he worked in the Roseland. Great he venues was, in New York City. Right. That I've was, seen shows at. Which right, is so right. And yeah. they were dance halls at the time. Right. And, you know, big bands would go in there. He was the maitre d' there in both places and at different times. And, oh, his pictures were awesome. But when he passed away, that's a whole nother story. Granny threw them away. We can't find them. All right. Because I think it just reminded her of him. And, you know, he died very suddenly. So that was very sad. He was like my buddy. But anyway, I so he would get home from work at like, say, three or four in the morning. And he would just stay up and get me ready for school because my grandmother was a really late riser she would get up at like 10 or 11 in the morning so he would so my parents were at work my grandfather would put me on the bus he'd give me breakfast when he got home at four o'clock in the morning if I woke up he gave me breakfast he'd buy Ebinger's was a, a bakery in Brooklyn and he would stop at Ebinger's and he would get a crumb cake that was out of this world or blueberry crumb pie he'd always get something and he'd feed me breakfast 
but that was the kind of breakfast I ate. I didn't eat cereal or anything. My father cooked eggs and bacon on the weekends or pancakes. He'd write my name in pancakes and stuff. Don't forget, I was an only child at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, so I didn't have a normal leave it, leave it to beaver like kind of existence because my parents weren't weren't home until dinner time and then I would go to sleep but that's even I never had a bedtime either like I just fell asleep on the couch and they would pick me up and put me in my bed right you know a little bit a little spoiled yeah a little bit a little but very grateful never a spoiled brat always grateful for what I had and they always told me that too but um yeah it was really I always loved and I still love the fall into the winter time because it gets dark early I know it's like it's contradiction it's a contradiction in terms like why would you want it to get dark early I like that too but yeah Yeah, I always loved it and I think I loved it because I knew I was home from school that I was being taken care of I would be doing my homework at the kitchen table and my grandmother would be cooking she was a wonderful cook my grandmother was Italian my grandfather was Irish and she would be cooking food and talking to me and, you know, making coffee. And, you know, it, she was just very, they were very kind and nurturing to me, my grandparents. It was like having two sets of parents, actually. And that was always a great time for me. And then I knew my parents were going to come home. When I got a little bit older, I could actually walk to the train tracks and meet them and, you know, walk home with them. But I knew they were coming through the door and sometimes they'd have a Pez dispenser for me or, you know, something like that. But my mother wasn't, a, you know, a, a cooking, wearing an apron, like, you know, the beavers, the be- no, the cleavers. The cleavers, The yeah. cleavers. Um, yeah, not like the beavers. <laughs> um, but anyway, she, it wasn't like that, but it was kind of. We were really good friends with the neighbors. All the kids in the neighborhood played. We played like potsy. Do you know what potsy is? I don't think so. It's like you um, hopscotch. Oh, it's okay. called in a lot of places. We called it potsy. The things that we threw into the numbers were called potsies. And we'd you know, choose flat stones or something for that. We would play kickball and stickball and, st- you know, like... um. I think it was called stoop ball. We throw the ball into the stoop and then you'd bat it, you know, at the house, which was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Can you picture your father if you played stick ball? Yeah, he would have really loved me playing hockey in the driveway. I couldn't imagine him doing, leaving welts in the garage. No, he wouldn't like that. He wouldn't like, he was very meticulous. Um, Yeah, so it it was just a great experience. We had this schoolyard down the block from us. The guy, I used to play basketball, so a lot of the older kids would come and play basketball, ask me to come and play basketball with them. So it was always fun. The kids were playing baseball down the, you know, the little league down the, the schoolyard with, you know, formal little leagues and stuff like that. And then in the 60s, you know, I started, again, I started high school in 64, um, you know, pretty much while I was in high school, like the the twiggy thing, you know, like the short, short skirts and the big eyelashes and the very short cropped hair. And I have, you know, curls over my head. So that was a little bit of a challenge for me. But by that time, my father had actually gone to beauty school to become a stylist, just because he has an artistic flair. I mean, he was always going to school for art of some kinds. And his brother owns a shop at that time, 
a beauty shop in um, Manhattan that he worked with on week. He worked at it on weekends when he got that. So my father was always doing crazy stuff to my hair. The Vidal Sassoon, really straight hair up to your eyeball on one side and down to your cheek on the other side. I was always, he was always cutting my hair. He didn't do it to my mother. He did right. it to me. But yeah, it was, um, it was kind of, it was kind of fun. You know, I, we were hippies, your father and I. I don't know if he'll admit that ever, but we were pretty hippie-ish. Although Ann Call will say I was never a hippie, but she was four yes. when I became a hippie. <laughs> so, um, you know, but so I had, I was, it was the hippie culture. And, you know, a lot of our friends wanted to desert going into Vietnam. They wanted to be deserters. Um, Terry, the one that's really sick, he was AWOL for a while um, at your father's apartment. <laughs> <laughs> which I was like to your father, this probably isn't a good idea yeah. harboring a fugitive, you know, but, but I actually kind of talked him into going back and, and they drove him back the next day. He was out for a few days. He was AWOL for a few days, but it was, it was a, a hard thing. I think, you know, the, the Vietnam thing, your father used to call all of our friends. There was probably, there was many, many of us because your father had two groups of friends. He had like the the kids that were rough, we used to call them the hoods and the sport rats, right? The sport rats were the guys that played and the women that played sports and that were cheerleaders and stuff like that. I was actually a cheerleader. And then there was also the hoods that wore like the pointy shoes and the tight black pants and had the cigarettes rolled in the sleeve, you know, and they thought they were going to, they were Fonzie. You know right. what I mean? They were <laughs> going to jump on a motorcycle or something. But your father had friends from both arenas and we kind of brought them together, which was really fun. So your father used to call, he'd say, come on, we're going to go out to Frankie's house, Uncle Frank's. We're going to go to Frankie's house. It'll be the 40 freaks, you know? And we just used to laugh and really have a good time and did a lot of drinking and stuff. And we just had a good time. But we worked really hard. So my my sister was like, you worked, you weren't a hippie. I said, well, yeah. Um, I went to nursing school for a year failed chemistry, which was a shock to you. And I told you that a few years ago. And um, they asked me to repeat the year. And I was I was 17 years old. I was like, yeah, right, I'm going to repeat the year. I don't think so. So I went to New York and worked in um, for the stock exchange. I worked for Merrill Lynch in their personnel office. And your father was a iron worker. He was actually a wire lather. That's what they call them in New York. There's two different trades, wire lathers and iron workers. But he did the beams on the World Trade Center. It was awesome because I could see them from my building. So that was kind of cool, you know. And then we, you know, we just used to hang out. But do you have like specific Oh, yeah, questions? definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have lots. Right. Well, too, many, too many that unfortunately only have about okay. a half an hour yeah, left. I'm so sorry. I, I, no, no, it's nothing to be sorry about. You, we, we got a little, because of me, we got started a little late. But let's talk a little bit about Vietnam because that's the, obviously a, a big okay. one that we can work backwards if we have to. But All right. how large did that loom in, for your generation and especially for the boys because you know I was trying to explain to Aaron and I think this is the way it works although you can correct me if I'm wrong that people would tune in on TV mm-hmm. at a certain time to watch the, or the lottery would be drafted from, from yes. Washington DC they would put it on the TV it would be in the newspapers based entirely on birthday and your number would just get pulled or it wouldn't and you just had to live like that and I yes. just couldn't imagine and I know that 
my assumption is dad joined the Air Force largely to avoid having to do that. And I, I looked actually at my own. I wouldn't have been drafted, which is interesting if my birthday was October 14th I back th- then. But I, I like there's a there's a website I think USA Today did where it's like you can see when you got when you would have been drafted right. based on your birthday and all this kind of stuff. What was that like, like tuning into that or knowing people it like it must have been horrifying, especially for men, boys, it 16, 17, 18 year old boys leading up to this, hoping this thing ends. And right. the unfortunate thing being born in 50, you and dad both being born in 50 is it wasn't the ending. war went off by 66, 67, 68. It was going nuts. Right. So it was getting only worse. Right. And that must have been horrifying for everyone you knew to know that this was their their card was probably going to get pulled. It was. It was terrible. I, I think, but I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not positive of this, but I think if your father had been in the lottery, he wouldn't have been called. But your uncle Michael was called. When he when he turned eighteen, because he's a couple years younger than Dad. And just for people to know, people know Uncle Mike Blake because he's been on the show. But we're talking about this is Uncle, Michael Moriarty. Uncle Michael Moriarty, who's my other Uncle Mike, who's my dad's brother. Just right, to right. be clear. Yeah. So Uncle Michael, I think. Oh, I know he got drafted, and I think I'm pretty sure Uncle Steve. Then these are all Moriartys that we're talking about. Aunt Barbara's. Aunt Barbara Moriarty, her husband, Steve, I think he was drafted also into the service. And he went, right? He went. Yeah. Uncle Michael, I don't think went to Vietnam. He went because it was kind of Peter, like, thankfully, it was, but it was changing. Yeah. But uh, he went to Germany, I think. But Uncle Steve did go to Vietnam. I'm pretty sure he was in Vietnam. And most of our friends were. One of the guys that I was in high school with, and I think it probably was to avoid the draft, joined the Marines. Now, don't ask that's interesting. Why he joined the Marines. Yeah, that's an interesting way to but dodge But he, he died before we graduated. He died before he would have graduated. And so we dedicated our yearbook to him. His name was Michael. I'm not going to say his last name. And he was an awesome guy. And I remember he came and said goodbye to me before he was leaving the previous year. And I was like, where are you going? Are you moving? He was like, no, I'm going to the Marines. And I said, why? Like, my heart was broken. Because I was like, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, you're protected. You're still in high school. But I think he was afraid and he ended up not coming home, which was really sad. I get really choked up about it. You know it. where he died? What what battle? Or I don't remember the battle. I don't know it if they early. ever told us. Yeah. Yeah. Were there, this is always the thing that's confusing to me because I see this and it's hard for me to be able to put my actually I think I told you guys a story about how a guy came and cleaned my carpet I told you this story right no two guys came to clean my carpet in LA one older guy one younger guy the younger guy was like doing all the work the older guy was like chatting my ear off and for some reason told me he's like you know I I I deserted and went to Mexico and I guess that's what people in California and Southern California were doing Mm -hmm. we always talk about how people are going to Canada here but a lot of people are going I think to Mexico down down there yeah. yeah yeah and I got to be honest with you, and I don't mean to be flippant about this. I looked at him as a complete coward for doing that. I, I, I don't think Vietnam was a righteous war. I don't think I would have supported it. But if my number was and, and who knows what I would have done if no, my number you was don't pulled. Know. But I think that you just I think based on the fact that people were going and doing their duty and dying, you can't just withdraw yourself from that. So someone else's kid dies in your place. What what, what was so I like well, I was like I wanted to be like get the fuck out of here you know like I don't know why you're telling me that especially because my family knows people that died you know then you got to like go run off with some girl or something like that that's cool cool but were there what was it like what, were there people that really did support the conflict and people that didn't and how did that change you know, it was really hard for me because the hippie movements and the women's movements and all of those things with Jane Fonda you know all mm. the stuff that went on with Jane Fonda it was really confusing and hard for us because. 
I didn't want my friends over in Vietnam. They were dying. You know, Michael died before we even graduated. I mean, it makes me cry. You know what I mean? But they were like, you know, throwing things at them and chanting, you know, anti-war chants. And I'm like, are you crazy? We have all of our young people there and they're getting killed for you. You know, they're getting killed yeah, and they for don't you. want to be there anymore than right. you want them there. I and mean, they're there. Right. We might not. We sh- may not have. It should have been that we weren't there. Maybe it should have been that we weren't there or in any conflict, actually. You know, when you think about it, why are we even doing this? I yeah, wish the these war, wars you know, I wish there was peace, right. you know. But if if we send people there, you've got to support them. And I think in retrospect, because it was very hard for me, you know, knowing that Terry, you know, on his two day leave went AWOL because he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to go back to this Vietnam. Was after he did a tour and then and then went AWOL. Right. Right. So that's pretty you No, know, he didn't him. want to go back to Vietnam. He knew he was going back. You know, I think that watching that and then watching the Gulf War where everybody stood behind them. Oh, it so makes me cry. That um, I think that came from the fact that now the baby boomers were supporting, like they weren't going to let that happen again to anybody that went overseas. Like it's just wrong. Like you might not agree with the war, but they're not going there because they want to be there. They're going there because they got drafted. You know, and they didn't desert. I mean, I know a lot of my friends were like, I know I'm going to run away. And I'd be like, you're not going to do that. That's a coward. You're a coward. You know, you'll never come back here. You'll never be back here again. Yeah, you can't come back. And they they did. Right. I think I think Gerald Ford gave them a blanket amnesty. Right. But they had to stay away from yeah, a while. Or but, you know, he, they were, were just lucky that, you know, they were lucky that they got amnesty. You know, so it was it's really um, it's very sad for me and very emotional. One of my friends was a um, was a sailor. And. You know, I never knew really where he was because there were no cell phones or anything. Like I had, one of my friends was in the Air Force. Your dad was in the Air Force. Most of Bruce, dad's friends that they called Camel. Does he ever talk about Bruce? Bruce was in in the Marines and everybody else was in the Army. So I was mostly friends with Mickey and Mickey, you know, would go out on on the ship. But I never knew where he was. You know what I mean? When he would pull back in, he I think his ship was based in Rhode Island. He would call me and he would come home and, you know, we would hang out and stuff like that. But you were always worried. I mean, you felt better that he was on a ship and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Bruce or Terry or Uncle Phil or any of yeah, those guys. Yeah. Right. That he wasn't with those guys. And your father was in the Air Force, so he was, you know, he was going to be fine. But you never know. You never know if he's going to be fine. Yeah, dad would, for people that don't know, my dad was a mechanic. In, in yeah, the but so they could have put him anywhere right. to be a mechanic. Yeah, they could have sent him over. Right, So, but and they planes didn't. Planes were shot down constantly, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And my other friend, Steve, who was in, he was also in, he was in the army. He was a chopper pilot That's, in Vietnam. Which is like the most dangerous job. It is horrifying. And I remember him coming home one Christmas. I didn't know he was coming home. You know, because I had friends that were, you know, in the service and they would come home and they would just come over to the house because my house was like the house that everybody wanted to hang out in because, you know, I had a very loving, kind family. But Would they come over in their uniforms? Yes. You know, they would come in their uniforms. He would, you know, he came to the door one time it was him and someone else. You know, they had the wings on and everything. I just started crying. I was like, you're home? You know, like, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, we're home, but we're going back. 
You know what I mean? Like, you know, they would come home, but sometimes they would be sent back again. So it was, it was you know, they didn't know where they were going to go, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And, and when did things really... When did things really start to turn against it where, you know, I, I was watching, you know, I, I think I know more than your average bear about the Vietnam War for sure. I'm fascinated by history. But, than it than I do. But watching Ken Burns' 10-part documentary, because Ken Burns can't tell a story in fewer than 25 hours. I'll watching watch that, that. It, it, I'm always curious about when it turned. And I wonder if you remember this specific moment that I'm going to mention. Okay. Although I don't know if you will, when the live on TV, the Vietnamese... The South Vietnamese security agent shot the guy in the head on TV. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if I just put it out of my mind or I don't remember it. And like shot a Viet Cong like right on, on like live on TV right in his head or whatever. And then that it started, I guess that was really a, an inflection point for the war. But I wonder how your parents felt, felt about it knowing that they had fought. And also having gone through a war of containment in Korea, they didn't fight in Korea, but there was a war of containment in Korea that ended exactly actually better than Vietnam ended because we didn't really lose that war. We really did lose Vietnam. What, what, what were their thoughts on it? Because your dad knew what it was to fight he the, did. the Japanese and, you know, and your right. and and, the, and obviously others knew what it was to fight the Nazis and right. stuff. So. so I had a friend, you know, my father obviously was very much against, not against the war because he works for the department of the army, but he, um, he wasn't, he didn't want them over there. You know what I mean? He didn't want anybody in battle if he could avoid having them in battle. And he got one of my friends into the to the army. What is it called? The um, the reserve or something? The reserves. Yeah. So that, you know, some most of the reserves then weren't going over because they had the reserves protecting our land yeah, in case, in case something a, happened. With the Soviets. Right. Yeah. And so he got, his name was Pete. He got Pete into the reserves, into the army reserves. And... Pete was living in New York at the time, but his family was from Florida. And he actually had his, he ended up having his station or whatever, it's his connection to the Army Reserves moved to, the, to a base in Florida. So he never got, he never got called out, you know, for duty. Your father, I, I, I think someone, I don't know how they got into the reserves. I think what happened with your father, but I'm not sure, you'd have to ask him about this, is Uncle Dennis... Denise and Colleen's dad was in the reserves and I in the uh, Air Force re, in the Air Force reserves and and I think he got your father interested in going into the Air Force but I don't know because I don't know anybody in the Air Force besides dad oh and my friend John was in the Air Force also during Vietnam yeah but he was in Germany also right yeah I, it was a really that was a really hard thing because there was so much hoopla going on about it here and I used to you know I dressed like I was a hippie you know I did go to work and I you know looked very nice at work but when I came home you know the pants went on and you know the you know the the hippie like look kind of thing and people would assume that I didn't you know that I went to all kinds of protests and stuff and I'd say I'm not going to that protest I have friends over there I have friends that died so they died in vain you know, they died for you that don't want them there. I mean, I understand. I don't want them there either. But I, I, it was a contradiction in terms, if that makes any sense at yeah, all. No, absolutely. It's very it's very complicated. It's, the, it's kind of the way I felt about the the uh, anti-war protests in the second Bush administration mm-hmm. or the second term of the second Bush administration when people were protesting. I'm like, but I understand. I don't I was very vehemently for the Iraq war. I always talk about that. I, I was totally I, I was completely wrong about that. You I mean, wanted I, to go. I, 
Yeah, I mean, I talked about. I, I talked about it because, I was, I was like, because I talked about. Yeah, I don't never. I never talk about that because I. I was talking about. You know, like you know, it was fresh off of nine eleven. We really thought we were going to fight some sort of ideological like be right, all end right. all battle for. A, I mean, I think people need to think back to. The, the frame of mind of the United States at that time, we really thought we were going to have like an apocalyptic battle with, right. you know, Islamic terrorism in the Middle East and like end it, you know, and I was completely wrong about the way it all went down. I have no problem with Afghanistan, by the way. I have no problem that we went there at all. I think we probably should have went with even more overwhelming force and finished it quicker. But, right. you know, Iraq was different. And so I was totally wrong about that. And it goes to show you that, you you know, even in the present, when you're sure you're right, you're probably or maybe not. And I definitely wasn't. And I regret that because I I mean, I was even in, I was even in class in Northeastern supporting the war and all that kind of stuff. Right, but know? that's that's growth. Like when you're learning about it and changing your mind, that's just growth. Well, I'm glad it's education that I, and growth. I'm glad I supported it though because it it totally changed my outlook on war. And you know, hearing my story, you know, my friends come come back. My, my friend Dave, for instance, who you know, and others yeah, who went he was over my there. My student. And you know, they talk about you know they killed people and they did mm-hmm. hor- you know i don't want to say they, they did, did horrible things, things but they did well, but they, they had to do they had, they had to, to do, do they, i'm not yeah. saying that they were doing horrific things but in the course of conflict you're gonna kill people and you're gonna you know he was a hell you know helicopter gunners and all sorts of things and they see you know snipers and they see crazy things and you hear these stories and you kind of take it on board and that made me a complete you know I'm, i don't want to I, I call myself a pacifist sometimes i don't think that's true right. i believe that we should insert ourselves if we have to with right. overwhelming and immediate exactly. force but otherwise we need to you know stay out of these things so i'm it was a it was a, it was a teaching moment for me. Unfortunately, it, it you know, or fortunately, I guess it didn't cost us nearly as many lives as Vietnam did. Right. But I guess to for as we wrap up with maybe a little more levity, I'm curious to talk to you a little bit about kind of the entertainment and how that you know you lived during an interesting time oh, when television was, awesome. was pioneered and music really changed from big bands and then you know kind of jazz and blues and and Elvis and then you had real rock band rock bands with the the Yardbirds and then the Beatles and then oh, the you know Beatles, and then my favorite band of Beach all Boys time. and all that kind of stuff so I'm curious what it was like to come up during that time because it seems so formative in establishing how we look at entertainment today whether it's television whether it's uh, movies whether it's music and stuff like that right so the entertainment the you know was very much family centered the entertainment so there was like the Ed Sullivan show that you watched on Sunday nights there was Disney's I can't the what, wide world of Disney or something there was always like a Disney movie on on Sunday nights and you would do those those things as a family there was the great you know like leave it to beaver and you know all of those types of shows you know Andy Griffith and you know all of those wonderful shows that they still show today you know on on me TV or whatever whatever television that right. channel that is and those are really wholesome wonderful shows I don't know if there was so much real life sometimes. The Flintstones was a big thing. I remember when the Flintstones came on, I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13. I remember I played basketball at the time and my girlfriend Beth and I would be at basketball practice or a game on a Friday night down, you know, we went to parochial school, but we went to Meadow Drive down, down, we used to play because we didn't have basketball things at St. Aidan's so we would play at Meadow Drive and and we would look because we got finished at like say eight o'clock I don't remember the time but say we were finished with the game at eight o'clock and we'd look at each other and run to my mother's house and say is the Flintstones on and like run to the television and put the Flintstones on it was like you know that kind of thing my parents always listened to big bands and they were very good dancers and they taught me how to dance like the Lindy and the cha-cha and all kinds of dances. When I was just a little girl, I used to, I learned by st- standing on my father's feet and he would show me how to do it. They used to like sometimes put the records, 
you know, the records on the 72, you know, RPM records, the big ones, and just dance, push all the furniture in the living room, because we didn't have the back room at the time, push all the furniture out of the way and dance and granny and gramps would come in and you know, they'd be having their coffee or something, watching everybody dance. And my grandfather loved bands. I mean, that's what he did, right? Worked in the Roseland and in the Palladium. And then for me, it was just a natural progression to listen to things. You know, they bought me a record player. I think it was probably nine or 10. And I used to sit in the living room and listen to like Barbara Streisand and um, Bobby Darin, you know, uh, all, all those, all those kind of, contemporaries at the time and then you know the Beatles my favorite band in the world I want to say it was 1964 but I might have I might be wrong I was just going into high school when they were on the Ed Sullivan show and they became like this craze you know I used to cry like when I when I would listen to them I would actually cry I would be so excited you know my mother used to say she did that with Frank Sinatra and I'd make fun of her and then I was doing it for the Beatles I was like you know yikes we went to a lot of concerts, your father and I, in the 60s. You know, all kinds Is of concerts. Is that when Dad threw a yogurt at, at the stage? Yes, we went to see Santana. So we went to one of the oh, we went to one of the last with friends of mine from New York that I worked with. You know, two guys that worked in data processing. They asked me and your father to go with them to this concert to see Santana at the Fillmore East. And it was one of their last concerts before they closed. And so I said, yeah, that would be awesome, you know? So we got dressed in our hippie outfits because they were used to seeing me dressed for work, you know? And we went and, you know, Tommy was there and um, John, I think it was Tommy and John, their names and their wives. And we were sitting in the balcony and your father had yogurt. You know, they sold yogurt at, you know, this concert, the Fillmore East. You know, it was like all kinds of crunchy stuff, if you know what I'm saying. And he's eating his yogurt and this band comes on before Santana and your father just stands up <laughs> and we look over at him because I was sitting next to the two guys, you know what I mean? And their wives. So your father was at the end and we look up at him and he has the yogurt in his hand and he throws it. And I, we looked at him and said, what are you doing? He said, they're horrible. We said, you know, it didn't hit the stage. It hit someone in the audience. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> That was the last time they asked us to go anywhere with them. Yeah. That's for sure. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah, they said to me on Monday, why did he throw the yogurt? And I said, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. I didn't give him the yogurt to throw, you know. Right. But, oh, my God, yeah. But we used to go to a lot of different, you know, things. We saw Phil Collins and we saw um, the Allman Brothers and the Doobie Brothers and the Doobie Brothers were actually the opening acts for the Allman Brothers, which is crazy because they ended up liking the Doobie Brothers better. Right. Um, went to Chicago and, you know, lots of different. Well, Peter um, Cetera. Huh? I love Peter Cetera. Yeah. So we went to see Chicago at the, um, I can't think of it, what it is. It was at the tennis stadium. And when we left, we put the, you know, we had A-tracks at the time, right? We put the A-track in the car you know, in the car stereo Chicago tape. And we had the windows open and we're singing and having a good time. And this car pulls up next to us and says, didn't you have enough of them yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to go um, to this little wine place called Tiffany's. It was like on the border of the Queen, Queens and Nassau County. And the first time dad took me on a date and he took me there. 
it took us two and a half hours to find Tiffany Annie's because it was down like in a basement like store in two and a half blocks. It took us two and a half hours to find it. I was like to your father, you think we could stop and ask someone? He was like, you know, a real man. No, we don't need directions. Two and a half hours later, we found Tiffany Annie's. Like, and we used to go there and just have wine and cheese. You know, it was a really cool place to be. They had, you know, Tiffany lamps and it was very hippie-ish. Um, yeah, we had a we had a good time. On my 18th birthday, your father and his friends took me to a strip club because I could drink. I was legal to drink at 18. And I didn't know they were taking me to a strip club because I had been in the bar with them before and it was a bar. So we went into the strip club and I don't even know if I should be saying this. So they sat me with my back to the stage. I didn't, you know, because the band was usually up on the stage. So I was waiting for the band to start. It was like a Friday night, you know. And I'm like, why are there only men in this bar? And why are they all staring at me? You know, but they weren't staring at me. They were staring at what was going on behind me. Right. You know, so like, yeah, we used to do crazy things, but we had fun. We really did. We had, it was a great growing up childhood and we got married. We were young. We were just, your father was still 21. I was, I had just turned 22 two weeks before. And, um, and we had Dagan by the time we were 23. So yeah. Yeah. Things moved quicker back then, I think. For yeah. A lot of people. Yeah. The final thing I wanted to ask you about, it's a little bit of a non sequitur, but I did want to touch on this was, I guess, the Italian in the house. Oh. I'm always fascinated by this. So you said, if I remember correctly, that they didn't want to teach you Italian because it, it seems so different. I think we've overcompensated in a different way in American culture now to the other direction where yes. people aren't learning, you know, people are coming here and not learning English uh, proficiently or quickly enough, which right. I think is, exactly. you know, I guess fine. I know that your grandma didn't speak English. She didn't. So I'm not I'm not trying to cast aspersions. She only spoke Italian. But so I'm not trying to cast aspersions on that. But I think generally we've overcompensated in any other direction where it's like, you know, now, you know, I agree with, you, you know, so we haven't found that happy medium yet. But back then it was an they were embarrassed they to teach you Italian be because they wanted you to be American. So can you right. talk about that? And if I guess you must yeah, really I can regret, talk about that. Oh, that very bit. much so. I used to say to my father all the time, we couldn't take Italian in school. They didn't they didn't offer it. But I would say to my father, Dad, why don't you teach us Italian? He'd say, no, you're American. No, and I think, especially from being in the war, it was like a thing with him. And my grandmother that lived with us spoke English, but she, that was my mother's mother. She spoke English because remember, she was married to an Irish guy. But um, she would talk to my father, but they were from different areas. She was from Naples and my father was family from Sicily. So they spoke different dialects, but they could understand each other. But when I would go to my faraway grandma, the one that lived in Red Hook in Brooklyn, that was my father's mother. She only spoke Italian. So did my grandfather. My grandfather died when I was four, but I remember him speaking Italian to me. And I understood what they were saying to me for some crazy reason, because I never learned Italian. But I would understand what they were saying to me, but I would answer them in English. And although they never spoke Italian, I think they understood English because the kids probably, the kids only, my father only spoke Italian in the house growing up, but I'm sure they spoke English to each other, the kids. And so they had to learn what the kids were saying behind their backs. I think that's why they understood English. But when my father was very sick and actually a couple of days before he passed away, I said to him, Daddy, why didn't you teach me how to speak Italian? Because I, I felt like that would have been something that I could have carried on for him. And he was like, I'm so sorry that I didn't teach you, but I really wanted you to be American. And I just felt like your mother wouldn't have understood what we were saying. And it would have bothered her. You know, if I spoke to you in Italian, I, you know, he never thought about 
speaking it in Italian and then in English. So my mother would know what he was saying. But maybe he thought I would never learn it if he did that, if he translated it for me, you know, for my mother. Right. I don't know. But yeah, it was a big thing because all my cousins speak Italian except us. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. It's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I would have really loved to have learned it. You know, my cousin Carl Ruggiero, my artist cousin, he he speaks Italian to me sometimes, and I'll say, he'll say, you know what I said? And I'll be no, and he'll just translate it for me, you know? But it's too late for me to learn. I would never be able to learn it right. Well, it's not too late, but I I understand. I don't have a mind for language, so it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. I took French at a collegiate level, and I still don't really. Right. I can read it okay, but I still really yeah, can't. it's like me. I was an American speak, Sign Language major. You have to speak major. very slowly to me, and I have to right. really think about it, you know? Yeah. You don't use it, you know? So. Well, that's it. With American Sign Language, I mean, I did that for five years. I, I can't even, I, can't, I probably can't really read it anymore and you know it would be hard for me to even sign right but I, I love it i would love to go back and take classes it would come back to me well i know you have to go so i'm gonna wrap it up but i that was that was fun yeah and i think it was just a nice little nice little glimpse into a time period that dagan and i cannot speak to you know so mm-hmm. we're going a little i don't know that we'll ever really go much older we did a twilight zone episode i guess so we did go oh, to the, that's the best we did go to the late 50s and early 60s but you know that was for entertainment but it was cool to get a little bit of a glimpse into into your world and well, into all that. Well, I appreciate you asking me those questions and making me remember it. Your it's, alarm's going it's off. It's my alarm going off, right, so I, I that, leave. I guess that's our cue. So uh, I'll wrap it up. And uh, mom, thank you very much. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you, Colin. I love you. All right. I love you too. She's going to run off to get her alarm down. We appreciate all of you. I hope you enjoyed this kind of special one-off episode of Knockback. We'll have mom back on, I'm sure, in the future. And maybe we'll do a longer episode next time. But uh, thank you for your support. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon if you'd like. If not, enjoy free feeds and please leave us nice reviews. It helps us algorithmically find a new audience. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Thank you. Goodbye. Colin's Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. C.J. Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosford, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Matthew Cooper, Gio Corsi, Nick Cottrell, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanicos, Mitchell Durkash, Knight Draft, Martha Emery, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Fodios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Blake Garcia, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Toothless Gibbon, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Greg Julefs, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lou and Ray Loper, Elijah Lopez, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Nicholas Mast, Zachariah McAdoo, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Michael Renner, Titus Rex, Peter Reynolds, John 
Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riebenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Andrew Smith, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Joseph Thayer, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Curen, Raymond Joshua Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Mike Wayan, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, That Rescue Guy, Casual Misfits Gaming, Super Shot ST, Throw 7, Infinite, Homeworld Hub, Mad Mock Media, Mubarak, Sticks and Crits, Richter 86, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Donk2015, and Gavin.